0: who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group text Just News to 989898 98 98 right now Hello America and welcome to the Monday edition of John Solomon Reports Oh what a Monday it's been lots of news going on all across the country and uh, we're going to get started on two critical issues today we're going to focus just on two Ukraine Russia We've got George Beebe, the former head of the CIA's Russia Analysis Desk. He is one of the true experts, intelligence committee experts on Russia, has some pretty profound things about why America has gone wrong in the relationship with Russia that could refocus the current crisis before it gets into what he has long warned about, uh, the possibility of nuclear war. He wrote the epic book, The Russia Trap, how our shadow war with Russia could spiral into nuclear catastrophe back in 2019. So many predictions in 2019 came true in 2022. George Beebe is one of the best that the U.S. Intelligence community has ever produced, and he's going to be with us. And then we're going to go back to our good friend. He's been a friend of the show for a long time. Adam on many times. He knows the border. He knows homeland security better than anyone. John Zadrosny is here, former advisor to President Trump. He's now... One of the most important voices at the American First Legal Foundation, he joined Ken Paxton in Texas in an epic lawsuit last week to challenge some new rules that basically allow illegal aliens to be in an endless cycle of review so they could stay in the country endlessly without being removed by emergency order, without being removed at all. Kind of a, a an endless feedback loop. It's intentional. It was by design. He and Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton filed this amazing lawsuit last week. You may not have heard about it. It has been on justthenews.com, but John's going to describe the entire gimmick, the entire game that the Biden administration is playing with this new rule change. It has the potential to be one of the epic court cases that decide the future of the security of the southern border later this year. Probably almost certainly going to head to the Supreme Court at some point. Very important Dynamic there. So, two great guests back to back. George Beebe, formerly of the CIA, John Zajazi, former advisor to President Trump on the border. Two great guests. Now, before we get there, I want to point out one story that we broke on Just the News. Uh, actually, I want to point out two. One that we broke on Sunday that really uh, got attention all across the country. The headline was, Durham, John Durham unmasks alliance between media and and Democrat dirt diggers that triggered the false Russia story. We went through all the court filings that John Durham has made in all of the cases, including the assessment case, and found all the references to journalists and how they were used, how they were fed knowingly false information, how the journalists were being fed at the same time the FBI and the CIA were being fed trying to create a storm in Washington. The news media were unindicted co-conspirators in the spread of the Russia collusion story. And on Sunday, we put out a 2,000-word opus that identified who some of those people were, ABC News, the New York Nimes, uh, Slate Magazine. We not only put out the names, we put out the approaches and what Fusion GPS and other people were doing. So you can see the sinister effort to manipulate and use the news media to help achieve a goal of forcing the FBI to go further in investigating Trump or to misinform the public before the um, 2016 election and then the beginning of the Trump presidency. There's one moment in the story, if if you don't pay attention to the whole story, look at one very important moment where the Fusion GPS is providing information to a reporter, and then they went further. This, I believe, was with the Wall Street Journal. They told the Wall Street Journal, if you call Congressman X and Senator Y... I bet they're concerned about this Trump-Russia stuff, and they'll give you something to say. They actually lined up the comments for the reporters, and you know what? Of course the reporters didn't. That's the reason why we have so many problems with this. Tremendous amount of new information that John Durham has put in the court files. We call out the media for their alliance, their conspiracy, their complicity with the Democratic machinery and putting out the false Russia story. It's a great one. And then today we broke another one, if you ever wonder whether there's a danger to one party rule in, in Washington, and I think this danger exists whether it's a Republican rule or Democrat rule, but when all the branches of government are controlled by one party, there's a danger. And we have a great example of it today. We got some documents under FOIA. They're documents that Georgia Secretary of State Brad Rafsenberger got, and they show Senator John Ossoff, the Democrat from Georgia, he's a freshman, one of the guys who won the January 5th. 2020 runoff that tipped the balance of the U.S. Senate to Democrats instead of Republicans. Well, John Ossoff was coordinating his questions with the Justice Department ahead of Senate Judiciary Committee hearings. Remember, these hearings are supposed to be independent oversight by the Senate on important issues like national security, voting rights. Well, Ossoff, through his chief counsel, Sarah Schomburg, sent his questions over in advance, and that even suggested the answers he wanted back. And guess what? It actually played out that way. He got the answer he wanted. The witness actually delivered. But there is a level of lacking independence, lacking oversight that is so complicit in these emails. We put them all up. The headline of the story, if you're looking for it, is stage managed. Senate Democrat fed questions to DOJ. Witness suggested answer ahead of hearings. But one of the things you're going to see in this document isn't just... The improper providing of the questions isn't just the improper providing of answers to a witness who should be answering on their own. There is a sentiment expressed by John Ossoff and his team that they didn't want to be to give any hard questions to the assistant attorney general, Kristen Clark. Quote, please let me know if you think A.A.G. Clark would have any trouble answering those. Maybe they can make another set of questions, they said. Another time when Merrick Garland was going to come, Schomburg said, I'm sharing these questions, a full draft of universal questions that I might ask. Please let me know if anything causes heartburn. Wait a second. Congress's job was to cause heartburn, to ask hard questions to get to the truth for the American people, to not just be a rubber stamp for the executive branch. John Ossoff violates all of those principles in these emails. Take a look at it. It's another very important story that broke on Just the News that you only got exclusively on Just the News. We're so proud to provide those. All right, folks, we're going to take that quick commercial break. When we come back, George Beebe, former director of the CIA's Russia Analysis Unit, followed by John Zadrosny former advisor to President Trump on all things border. Two great guests, two big news stories, back to back right after this commercial break. You know what, folks? Stress may be why you can't lose weight. If you've got moderate to high stress like I do, a doctor-formulated weight loss supplement called Lean could be your solution. Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute or alternative for care from a health care provider. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Very excited to have this next guest on. When I say he is a subject matter expert, I mean he is a subject matter expert. He is the former director of the CIA's Russia Analysis Unit. He's currently the director of grand strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Please join me in welcoming George Beebe. George, great to have you on. John, thanks for inviting me. You have been warning of this moment that we find ourselves in for quite some time. I remember some pretty remarkable articles back in 2020 warning about Ukraine strategy. Your book back in 2019, which is a must read, The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe, also had some very prescient warnings. How did America get itself into this moment right now?
1: Well, John, that's a very uh, important question in a, a very complex Uh, question as well because a lot of different variables played into this. Um, Part of it was the way the Soviet Union broke up and how um, citizens of the Soviet Union found themselves outside of the borders of uh, uh, their old republics in in newly independent states. and There are lots of repercussions to that that we're still dealing with today. Uh, Part of it is the United States Uh, after the Cold War thought that um, we were entering a a new era in which uh, the United States and NATO could essentially uh, set the rules in the world and and determine uh, how to enforce those rules and also decide when the United States and its allies uh, could exempt themselves from the rules. Um, And Countries like Russia grew increasingly concerned that uh, they were on the outside of you know, new security structures that right. were forming uh, in Europe. And they started to get more and more alarmed that uh, Russia itself was in danger, that uh, NATO enlargement, which really wasn't directed against Russia, at least not on the part of the United States, I don't think. Uh, But they started to see this as hostile encirclement of the Russian Federation by uh, NATO allies and and started to worry that uh, we were aiming at regime change inside of Russia. And um, we, uh, over the years, I think, just simply wouldn't take those Russian concerns seriously enough. We uh, responded by saying, you know, your perceptions are false. NATO is a defensive alliance, and you have nothing to worry about. Uh, And the Russians just never bought that. And uh, we have been on this collision course, I think, for a couple of decades. It's uh, unfortunate that we haven't been able to avert that, but it's continuing to escalate today, and I think it's grown to be extremely dangerous.
0: Yeah, no, I think we're at at a boiling point for, uh, for the first time. And when I look at this, and I've talked to a lot of different people, the idea uh, that we would constantly antagonize Russia with the idea that Ukraine should be in NATO, a lot of people say that that was sort of the that was the poking of the bear moment that made Putin paranoid. It doesn't seem like we ever were going to put Ukraine in NATO. So why? Uh, why poke it so many times and play into the fear? Was that a miscalculation on the part of some people in the State Department?
1: Well, I think it was a miscalculation on the part of a lot of people, not just in the State Department, but other parts of the U.S. government and, and outside the U.S. government in, in the uh, the expert community and right. the media. And I, I think part of this was a, a refusal on our part to give up on a vision of the way the world ought to be structured. Um, we called it back in the 1990s uh Europe whole free and at peace and we thought that the uh the best way and perhaps the only way to realize that vision was through NATO enlargement um but that by definition left the russians on the outside looking in uh because we never seriously considered russia becoming a part of nato right um and so And we also thought that this was largely a cost-free move on our part, that we could bring the Baltic states and Georgia and Ukraine into this alliance without ever really having to consider that uh, the United States and NATO would have to go to war to defend them. We thought that the Russians would be suicidal to attack NATO, um, and so we didn't really have to take that seriously. And I think the Russians have shown over time that that's not at all the case, that they regard this enlargement toward their borders as profoundly threatening and that they are willing to go to war to prevent it. Um, They did that in 2008 in Georgia. Uh, They did it in 2014 in Ukraine, and they're doing it today. So this is not at all a cost-free move on our part. Um, it is a vision that if we truly believe it's vital to the security of the United States, we have to be willing to go to war to defend it. Um, and that's a debate we've not really had. So there's an air of unreality, I think, to all of this.
0: That's such a great point. You're right. We we don't have that debate. And yet we there are people who nonetheless utter the idea. And it, it seems to have this antagonistic effect. And uh, again, you know, Putin has his own issues. But the way we've approached this, I think a lot of people have to look back and say, we've got to recalibrate. You've had some pretty big ideas in recent weeks about how to recalibrate. We're, if you're advising the president, if Joe Biden called you up and said, give me a half hour of your best ideas. What would you tell the president right now? To de- how, how could we deescalate without you know, giving up American security interests?
1: Right. Well, I, I think we're going to have to acknowledge a reality that we understood very well during the Cold War, and that is you're not going to take the world's largest nuclear power, and the Russians, as, as the uh, successor state to the Soviet Union, have more nuclear weapons that than we any do. country on Earth, including yeah. our own. Right. So you're not going to take a country like that and uh, essentially um, remove it from the playing field of international competition. We're not going to eliminate Russia as a competitor uh, unless we're, of course, willing to to use nuclear weapons in anger to do that. And that's uh, a move that, of course, would have suicidal implications for the United States. So that really isn't an option. So what you have to do under those circumstances is to find a way of managing competition. Uh, between the United States and Russia, between the United States and China, the great powers in the world, so that it doesn't get out of hand, so that it can be conducted within reasonable and safe uh, limits. Uh, we understood that during the Cold War, we had you know absolute hostility toward the Soviet Union, the Soviet system, no endorsement whatsoever for the brutality uh, that it used to govern uh, the Soviet people. But we still recognize that it was in our interest to make sure that we didn't uh, wind up in a catastrophic war. Um, and so we established some rules of the game to manage that competition, almost all of which are now gone. So we're entering not into a new Cold War. We're entering into something that I think is much more dangerous, and that is... Um, a competition more or less for survival with Russia without any rules of the game to uh, make sure this doesn't get out of hand. And the Russians are warning uh, quite loudly that they are willing to use everything they've got to defend their own country's existence. Uh, So my recommendation to the Biden administration would be here is that our goal can't be uh, crushing Russia, it can't be complete victory over Russia, which eliminates the Russians as players in the world. We're going to have to deal with them. We can't occupy Russia militarily, like we did with Japan and uh, Nazi Germany at the end of World War II, and rebuild those uh, former enemies into thriving partners. That really is not an option with Russia. So we have to think about how do we end this war in Ukraine and put it on a glide path toward a world in which we have rules to manage this hostility so that it doesn't get out of hand. And right now, I think our appetite has grown, unfortunately. We've seen the Russian military stumble in Ukraine, and we've started thinking bigger. We've started thinking, hey, let's let's so cripple the Russian military that they can't be a a competitor. It's not possible. Let's (laughs) strangle the Russian economy so that it can't generate a threat toward us. And perhaps then the Russians wake up and they they overthrow Putin in some way, and we get a much more pro-Western amenable uh, leadership there. And unfortunately, I think that
0: has a, an enormous uh, unreality to it. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. It's a pipe dream from everyone I've talked to. And getting to a detente uh, is a much better scenario than the current scenario we're in. Is there a moment, should Biden just say, call Putin up and say, let's do a summit? Let's just get on a boat in some neutral water and do a summit. Would that be the sort of thing that could shake up the dynamic of that's been spiraling a little bit over the last uh, three months?
1: Well, I think that's politically unrealistic for a couple of reasons. One is I think the the domestic political climate in Washington is so anti-Putin, and understandably so, and so anti-Russian, that it almost makes that kind of move untenable for uh, Biden to even consider. Uh, The other part of this is I don't think the Russians quite yet are ready to make peace. Um, Putin needs some sort of much more visible Uh, degree of success on the battlefield in Ukraine before I think he's willing to consider some sort of end to hostility. So I think at a minimum, the Russian military is going to have to occupy most or all of Donbass before the Russians will be in serious negotiating mode. But I do think it's possible uh, for other Western leaders, once that point is reached, to start talking about how we end this war at the uh, negotiating table. Uh, And it may not be Biden that engages directly with Putin on all of this, but I think there are plenty of other potential interlocutors who have the political flexibility to do this, who uh, could test to see how serious uh, the Russians might be about finding a way out of this. And I think that's the direction we need to be heading.
0: Do you like any particular uh, interlocutor? Is there someone that you say, you know what, I think that person could get some meaningful conversation going? Anyone in the world that jumps out at you right now as a go-to sort of person?
1: Well, I think uh, Macron in France, of course, has tried to play this role, uh, not particularly successfully uh, prior to the uh, invasion. Uh, The Turks, the Israelis have uh, taken some stabs at this, and and I uh, suspect those efforts will probably continue. Uh, The Chinese are an interesting possibility. Um, They so far have been quite reluctant to try to assume that role. Uh, It's not something they have a history of doing before, and it it is to some degree a risk, because if you're going to commit yourself to this sort of thing, uh, you better succeed. That's right. Uh, And you could wind up in a situation where... Not only your, your adversaries are not pleased with those efforts, but your, your friends are now former friends. And I don't think the Chinese want to risk that yet. But it is a possibility that it's intriguing to consider.
0: Yeah, that's one I hadn't thought of. Um, that's uh, fascinating. Uh, the, the report said uh, Putin is somehow sick. Uh, what, what's your assessment? I mean, obviously, you're a keen analyst. Um, is there some evidence that he's not well right now?
1: Well, nothing that I've seen that I, I find particularly compelling. In warfare, you know, we've all heard the phrase, the fog of war. Right. It becomes very difficult to separate uh, fact from allegation, uh, truth from rumor, uh, accurate information from wartime propaganda. Uh, and I think uh, we need to be very, very cautious in assessing a lot of the claims and reports that are out there. So, so far, I, I don't see anything that I... I find uh, a, a serious evidence that Putin is uh, somehow suffering from a, a significant illness.
0: Yeah. And when you look at the strategy now, the retooled strategy, Kev seems to be off the table, except for some antagonizing bombardments from here to here. It seems like creating a, a complete controlled Russian channel from Madova, uh to the Russian border through Donbass is where they're focused right now. The Russians are focused is that the sort of when if, if Russia succeeds at getting that is that the sort of victory that Putin can claim all right i've done enough let's negotiate
1: well i think yes i think that that would certainly be quite a compelling case that the russians have made a serious strategic uh advance in in dealing with ukraine uh, at that point uh ukraine what's left of it would be essentially a landlocked state right. um I think that uh, capturing the entire southern coastline of Ukraine is a very tall order for the Russian military based on how well they've performed so far. I think they've got their hands full capturing the rest of the Donbass. Very much an open question whether they can do that. Uh, So I I suspect the Russians are going to have to settle for much less than capturing the Ukrainian coastline.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. And there's no doubt they've underperformed. Are you surprised at how poorly the Russians have done?
1: Yes, I am. They, on paper, uh, quite badly outmatched the Ukrainian military. And I didn't expect the Russians to adopt such uh, an ill-thought-out strategy. I didn't expect them to struggle to the degree that they have uh, coordinating uh, their different forces uh, in Ukraine. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, the will to fight uh, of the uh, the Russian soldiers on the battlefield, I think, has um, not come close to matching that of their Ukrainian counterparts. Yeah. So, yeah, I think uh, I am surprised at how poorly the Russian military has performed.
0: It's been, I think, the most extraordinary part of the storyline is watching the Ukrainians succeed, outnumbered, outgunned. Um, And I wonder what it does to the Russian thinking long-term, watching the continuous failures. There's been some progress, clearly, in the last week or so where Russia's made some advances and got a slightly better strategy. But uh, really, on six weeks in, seven weeks in, I think a lot of people think, wow, with all that might, Russia can't do very much. There is a, I've seen you say this, and I'd I'd like to try to draw this out because I think it's one of the most important points you make. The way we've been dealing with Russia, maybe pushing Russia to head towards this sort of blood and soil form of nationalism, that the only way they're going to trust is if they can build buffers around them all around. How does one unwind that? How can the United States unwind that concept and get them out of that idea? Er, Yeltsin and the early Putin didn't have this you know paranoia, this fear, uh, but it seems like this Putin, the later Putin, does. Is there anything we can do to unwind the idea that only blood and soil are the way that the Russians are going to feel comfortable?
1: Well, uh, an excellent question, and and I don't have a good answer for you. Things have gone so far that it's going to be very difficult to arrest the trends inside Russia, which uh, both Yeltsin and and Putin. For quite some time, recognized was a danger. Yep. Russia is essentially uh, a multi ethnic and, and multi national uh, empire. A lot of different nationalities there. Uh, and of, you know, Russian uh, nationals, of course, are, are in the majority, but uh, they've got to, to live in a country in which all these different nationalities can peacefully coexist and are not at war with one another. And the degree to which great Russian nationalism, Russian ethnic nationalism, becomes a virulent force, uh, it poses grave dangers to stability inside Russia itself. Uh, and uh, Yeltsin recognized this, and Putin has recognized this, and he has resisted uh, a lot of the calls by uh, Russian blood and soil nationalists, his his far political right, right. to do things that would fuel their agenda. Well, um, certainly his decision to go to war in Ukraine uh, has fueled uh, great Russian nationalism inside Russia, and it's a very dangerous thing. And the degree to which the United States uh, more or less openly says that our goal is to weaken Russia, to remove it from the the, the world's uh, roster of, of significant powers, uh, that also fuels uh, blood and soil nationalism inside Russia. And I think we need to be very careful about where that might go. You know, the way we treated and, and the other victorious powers after World War I treated imperial Germany, um, humiliating it, Uh, certainly fueled uh, a a very dangerous form
0: of of uh,
1: ethnic nationalism uh, among Germans, and we all know how that played out. So we need to think very hard about where this might go and, and how to mitigate the dangers of that sort of development inside Russia.
0: Yeah, the, the parallels between World War One Germany, post World War One Germany, and Russia right now really. A lot of the pe- smartest people I've been talking have been really harping on that that we're in a danger zone where that could, that could give rise. And if we think Putin's bad, we could give rise to someone even worse than Putin if we keep this up. But I want to finish where your book started in twenty nineteen the re- very real danger of nuclear war or nuclear conflict. Um, how high is the danger at this moment, and what are, what are the ways it could get worse? And what are the ways it can get better?
1: Well, it's hard to be very precise estimating the dangers, but I would say we're in the somewhere between 5 and 10% range that this might spiral into a nuclear war, Wow. which doesn't sound particularly likely, and I don't think it is particularly likely. But when you consider the ramifications of that kind of development, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of people dead, <laughs> you know, and environment. Yeah, 10% disaster. seems
0: too much even then.
1: <laughs> That's right. That, you know, those are awfully daunting odds to be playing around with here. So um, on the one hand, it's not uh, not a particularly likely outcome. On the other hand, I think it is an extreme danger because of the the vastness of the consequences here. Now, what can we do to mitigate that danger? Well, I think by far the most effective thing we can do is to try to point toward an early end to this war, a negotiated settlement. Uh, The more we talk about years of warfare, the more those odds of catastrophe go up over time the more the dangers of accident and misperception and miscalculation go up, the longer this war goes on. Um, And the more the Russians are likely to feel cornered, the more they're likely to believe that the West is giving them a choice between utter defeat and humiliation or escalation potentially to the nuclear level. And that, of course, is the dilemma that John Kennedy, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, warned was something that no leader of a nuclear superpower should ever put his opponent in. Uh, unfortunately, that seems to be where we are headed, uh, not, without really thinking through the consequences the way I think we need to. So um, I think the United States ought to be focused like a, a laser right now on how we can use our leverage. Um, both our our coercive power uh, through arming the Ukrainians and our incentives by dangling the prospects of some sort of easing of uh, these extreme economic sanctions that we've used in order to incentivize the Russians to find a way out of this as soon as possible.
0: Yeah, that seems it. Last question, because a lot of the people I've talked to over the last six, eight weeks, have really said that this moment in the fall of 2013 may have been the most consequential of all the moments in the last 50 years of U.S.-Russian relations. The Maidan revolution and, and the perception that the U.S. encouraged it or facilitated it in some way, is that the trigger point for Putin becoming more and more distrustful of our intentions?
1: Well, sure. I, I think that was certainly a big moment. There were lots of them over time, and I, I tried to lay all of this out in my book. Yes, uh, there was. There was many, many years of events uh, and decisions that eroded trust uh, on both sides of this, both in in Russia and in the United States. Um, and I'm not sure I could point to one single event that said, "Okay, this was what." Did it. Here was the tipping point. Um, But certainly um, throughout both the 1990s and the the early 2000s, right up to the present time, there's been a a steady uh, erosion uh, in trust and deepening suspicions on both sides that the other side was really intending to destroy uh, its opponent in all of this. And that's not a situation that is sustainable over time. It, ultimately, you reach a point where, where people say, okay, you know, we're going to the mat on this, and yep. it, it's all or nothing. And we're at that point now, and we need seriously to consider uh, finding our way out of that. And that's not going to be an easy thing. It requires some very painful decisions on our part that we won't like. Uh, we will feel as if the bad guys have in some way – uh, not been punished sufficiently uh, but the alternative I think is even more catastrophic so we, we need to be um, very sober minded as we think about uh, the way forward here.
0: Yeah, that's a, those are wise words and I know why the CIA was so lucky to uh, count you among its uh, great analysts and of course why the Quincy Institute today is so lucky to have you George. Y- your thoughts are very good. Your book from 2019 folks, if you have not read this book, it go get it. If you're concerned about the state of the world, this book puts it in extraordinary uh, clear terms of how we got to this point. The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe, a must-read book if you're trying to figure out what's going on in the world today. George, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate all, all the insights we got from you today.
1: Thanks, John. My pleasure.
0: All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to go down to the border where there's some new lawsuits with John Zdrasny, former advisor to President Trump, right after this. House Nutrition, and, of course, Field of Greens. All you got to do to take advantage of this offer, visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Don't wait. Go to fieldofgreens.com today. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS for 15% off. Folks, factors, delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. Wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved Factor makes it easy. As they are flexible to your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Plus... Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat usually in just two minutes. So there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Head to factormeals.com slash justnews50 and use the promo code justnews50 to get 50% off. That's the code justnews50 at factormeals.com. One more time, factormeals.com slash justnews50. Use the justnews50 code and you will get 50% off your first order. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. I always enjoy having this next guest on. We learn something about homeland security, security in general, the border. Every time John Zadrozny comes on, he is, of course, with America First Legal Foundation, former advisor to President Trump, and really one of the true experts on border security. John, great to have you back on the show.
2: Thanks, John. It's great to be with you again.
0: It's amazing. Every time I, we, you have you back on, there's a big development, and you're right in the middle of it. America first legal, and uh, Texas worked very closely together to file this lawsuit late last week, challenging the asylum process, challenging the green card process for illegal aliens. Um, what is the Biden administration trying to get away with here?
2: I mean, uh, with, with respect to this one disastrous item, John, what they basically did was they— uh, they had originally tried to put forward a normal rulemaking process, uh, but they, in the middle of the process, they changed their mind and did what's called an IFR, an interim final rule. <laughs> um, and what that means basically is they get to short circuit the, the, a lot of the the requirements for going forward, and they they don't need um, like they don't they don't go through the full notice and comment process. Now they did collect comments. But they basically said, look, we're going to do something based on a few comments we received in the process and do something entirely different than what we were p- proposed. That's just the procedural stuff. Basically, what this rule does is at the end of the day, it's gutting what's called the expedited removal process. There's this little element of federal law that's been around for about 20 years that um, allows the federal government, if they detain an illegal alien anywhere in the United States within two years of entry, they can remove them. Now, if the alien in one of the in an expedited removal process doesn't make an asylum claim, boom, they're gone immediately. But even aliens in a potential expedited removal situation might have an asylum claim. It's called the defensive asylum claim because they didn't come to a port of entry and say, I want asylum. They waited to discover that they needed asylum when they got caught. Right. So, But, but under federal law, we still have to give them the option to prove their point. So uh, what we're supposed to do is we give them the option in expedited removal to make a case. If it goes before an IJ and the IJ says, no, immigration judge. Uh, If it goes before an immigration judge and they say, no, there's no claim of asylum here, then they're gone. Now, what this rule basically does is it it destroys expedited removal for all intents and purposes and creates an endless loop of review that will prevent it, prevent an alien from really ever being removed under the expedited, expedited removal process. There's a saying, John, in the immigration lawyer universe called, uh, <laughs> it's not over until the alien wins. Yes, <laughs> so we're, we're, we're calling this the, the alien always wins rule wow. because that's basically what it is. It's designed to prevent them from never getting a final negative adjudication yep. and never being able to be removed from the country.
0: Permanent doldrums means permanent residency in the United States. That's the end game here for sure. This lawsuit makes a very important argument. And it's one that I hadn't thought of until you guys got involved with Ken Paxton and the gang down there. But this looks to violate the appointments clause of the Constitution. So there's a good, strong constitutional argument against this. Describe the case that you're making here.
2: So, John, that's one of our main points here, which is that basically what they're doing is they're circumventing immigration judges um, who are appointed. Uh, they are appointed by the attorney general. Uh, they are ex- they are granted explicit authority under the Homeland Security Act of right. 2002 to be the voice of whether or not an alien is, is deserving of asylum. And it's important to note that even if an immigration judge, for example, finds that someone doesn't deserve asylum or does deserve asylum, there could be an appeal to that, to what's known as the Board of Immigration Appeals. Those are also selected by the attorney general inside DOJ. And then ultimately, the attorney general can weigh in and say whether or not the the BIA, as we call it, got it wrong. So there's an appellate process for those appointed immigration judges to determine whether asylum is real or not. What this rule does is it basically discards that entire process and says, we're going to give our asylum officers, who are career bureaucrats, who are hired by somebody in the basement of DHS, to make the decisions about who is deserving of asylum and they can make those determinations up front and there's no review process they basically have severed the ability for an immigration judge for example to look at a, a decision where an asylum officer an asylum bureaucrat gives asylum to an alien the immigration judge is not allowed to take a second second look at it if they grant them asylum or if have a favorable determination if they have a, if the asylum officer doesn't find asylum then it goes to the ij in the hopes that the ij will give them and asylum determination and it's really quite amazing because it really is like a, a perpetual positive feedback loop there's always yeah. this way to make sure that they get for example there's something unusual here which is when it goes to an immigration judge and an immigration judge finds there's no basis for asylum dhs is basically saying here we're going to let the ij pull it uh, we're going to let the asylum officer pull it back and review it and make a second look at whether or not they think they deserve asylum you can't do that after an immigration judge nope. has made a final determination it's at doj and it's in the, the pipeline for review yeah so It's really quite amazing, but it's also not surprising.
0: This endless review loop is the ultimate way of keeping as many of these illegal aliens in the country as possible. And uh, it follows a pattern, uh, and uh, and I've, I've been in this town 35 years. I have never seen a pattern of one administration repeatedly be willing to violate the basics of laws on the book. The basics of constitutional principles, and it's probably why their record of failure in the courts has got to be the worst of any recent administration. Uh, they're constantly being overturned in the courts. I mean, like 80, 90% of the time, whether it's COVID or moratoriums on um, uh, rental moratoriums or, or anything related to the border, what happens if the courts, as they likely are, Going to rule against this, right? They're going to they're going to say you can't do this. The law is clear. Change the law if you don't like the law, but don't don't work around it. Uh, do we reach a constitutional crisis at some point where this administration has to be held in contempt? Because you've got two big cases, right? This one here. You also got the Remain in Mexico, where they've been ordered to enforce it, and they're clearly not. One hundred ninety nine out of two hundred twenty one thousand illegal aliens last month were put into Remain in Mexico. That means nobody's being put into it. Do you think we head towards a constitutional crisis if they lose in the courts?
2: I mean, uh, that's a tough question for me to answer, John. I would, I would say it this way. I, I, it's really difficult to achieve um, the types of results we need through court decisions. But I, I think that this rule is on flimsy ground. Uh, yeah. and I think it's pretty obvious it's on flimsy ground. Uh, I think the Biden administration knows it's on flimsy ground because on Friday they requested that it be moved out of the Fifth Circuit and to, to the District of Columbia. Uh, so that one of their more recent appointments can tackle it and come right. to the right decision, wink, wink, nod, nod. Um, and they're terrified of having this adjudicated. This was, I believe, this is in front of the same judge who has, uh, who also has rendered the decision on uh, the migrant protection protocols, where right. he did find the administration was violating it. And like you said, thank you for pointing that out. They are basically in a contemptible position. They have not been enforcing MPP despite the court ordered to do so. And so, you know, you can start. I guess in terms of like answering your constitutional crisis question, at some point. Violating federal law, violating court orders should result in some sort of order of contempt in some of these cases. You know, I, unfortunately, John, I think one of the big consequences that has to fall at some point for this type of catastrophic damage is not going to happen until this administration is over. I think a future administration has to take a hard look at criminal and civil charges for the gross negligence of the officials of this administration. Unless there is a real consequence after federal service for Alejandro Mayorkas and all of these horrible people at DHS, there will, this will never stop. You know, and you've got this awful dynamic where you've got dangerous political appointees breaking federal law, hurting people. We're not talking about an academic subject
0: here. No, this isn't right. This isn't some academic lab thing. This is uh, having consequences every day.
2: We're not, we're not talking about angels on the head of a pin. Right. These are violations of federal law that are leading to Americans' deaths. Yeah. And at some point, someone's going to have to sit in a prison for a while and contemplate it. And the Nuremberg defense that, the, crim- that the, civil, uh, you know, the career bureaucrats are using in support of these dangerous policies will no longer hold and it should no longer hold.
0: Yeah, such an important point. There has to be a deterrent. And there just has been no deterrent in the first 18, 16 months of this administration. But at some point, being held in contempt, thrown in prison, being impeached, if you're a a secretary, cabinet secretary, something dramatic has to happen if they continue to thumb their nose, not only at the laws on the book, but now they're thumbing the noses at the courts. And I think that It's such a remarkable moment. I want to pivot to another remarkable moment, because if you told me two weeks ago, even despite all the crazy stuff going on, that Alejandro Mayorkas would announce a disinformation officer, ah, even that's a bridge too far for him, I would have been wrong. Your early reaction to the idea that the Homeland Security Department wants to get into the referee job of what's true or not true in America.
2: I, I, it's amazing, John. They literally created a ministry of truth. I thought that was limited to Orwellian fiction, exactly. but apparently, no. Uh, th- but this is what, this is what people who, who are on the wrong side of the truth and honesty and the real world do to prevent you from winning an argument. And it's just truly terrifying. I hope people realize this. I don't think people really fully understand the magnitude of this. Government has no, government generally, writ large, across the world should have no business in determining what's true and what's not. But in our system of government, it is actually constitutionally prohibited. The First Amendment guarantees yeah. that you, the government may not stop you from saying something. And we now know from a lot of different circles that not only have they now – they're, now they're full-fledged using federal resources, which is clearly unconstitutional. This is a, a five-second slam-dunk no-brainer for any judge who gets a case like this. Uh, but we also know in the past, at least in the past, they were trying to disguise it by hiding behind um, deputized uh, giant media platforms uh, to pretend to be private sector – uh, I would argue they were still violating the First Amendment by using mainstream media outlets and the big tech platforms sure. because they basically deputized them to do the government's bidding. Right. Now they're Now they're not even bothering with that. They've gone right to boardwalk. They're just going to say, look, we're going to have a ministry of truth that is going to prevent you from speaking misinformation. You know, John, I, I don't know where to go with this, except for one thing I think Americans really need to realize we are at a, a pivot point for the future of the country. And I, I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but we, we are at a point where Things we've assumed would never be challenged are being challenged and the risk of doing nothing is, is existential. And I really do worry about the future of the country. I hope people realize it's important. It's not just um, about your ability to speak when you see fit, but the first amendment protects the ability to people to be wrong. It even protects the ability of people to lie. I think at the end of the day, what the left is not afraid of, they're not afraid of people being wrong or people lying. They're afraid of the credibility battle between their information and other people's information because yeah. they know they're going to lose and you can't allow free speech when you know you're going to lose and that's what this is all about they know they're going to lose
0: yeah when you look at the epic ones the epic ones that the democrats have fought russia collusion which was completely now contrived thanks to john durham we see that and we also saw how they use the media to carry that out now uh and uh the rush uh, the hunter biden laptop in both of those cases The left was not trying to knock down something that was false, or it is, it was actually trying to suppress something that was true. And I think that's the most shocking of all of the moments is that we're now trying to suppress truth under the First Amendment. And um, I don't know, I don't know how the country can tolerate it. Where Republicans get control, let's suppose that they have a good election, which all the the polls are uh, leaning toward. Republicans get control of the House and the Senate. Uh, what's a way that they can impose that consequence before the 2024 election where there might be a change in the White House? Is an impeachment of one of the cabinet secretaries something that would really send that message? Or is there a better strategy in your mind for imposing that sort of accountability for some of the lawlessness that has been allowed to go on?
2: I think, John, that's a great question. I think they have to take an all-of-the-above approach to the problem. I think you mentioned impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas. I think that's something that should be done. I think the strategy for impeaching cabinet secretaries and even lower officials um, is actually a very viable one for a bunch of different reasons. If you actually want to solve the problem, you might actually get bad actors removed, whereas if you impeach the president, I'm not saying they shouldn't impeach the president. I think they should impeach Joe Biden and tie up his administration for two years um, but, I'm not, but if you impeach Mayorkas, for example, he gets thrown out. You impeach Secretary so-and-so, they get thrown out. Eventually, you're going to have a hard time filling those spots, and you really bog these, these agencies down in terms of dealing with impeachment trials, etc. Um, but that's not all Congress could or should do. I would, I would encourage them to investigate everything under the sun. Um, they need to return a little bit of the medicine of the previous administration, of the previous dynamic under the Trump administration, where Congress saw, saw phantoms where there were no phantoms. This time we've got plenty of phantoms to investigate. Uh, the most important thing, John, though, that Congress can do, which it never does, and unfortunately Republicans are just as bad as Democrats, but they really need to change how they operate. They need to spend less money. These agencies are breaking the law. The solution is to give them a 50 percent budget cut. Yeah. Um, don't give them the fuel to abuse you. And unfortunately, Republican Congresses have fallen for the siren song that they can just dump trillions of dollars on federal agencies and expect them to listen to them. Well, that's not going to happen. You've given them the money for the war chest for them to abuse you. The power of the purse strings. The power of the purse strings. You could argue, John, that's actually the only real power Congress should have, spend money or not spend money, and they're interested in everything else and doing everything except their primary oversight duty, which is reducing federal spending. But if they want to cut this off, they should cut off the money.
0: Yeah, no, I think that would be... Amazing thing. And there's such a moment now because the the deficit's out of control, the uh, debt's out of control. Uh, It would be politically popular to start reining in spending. And at the same time, you also undercut the fuel for that uh, independent bureaucracy that's been thumbing its nose at the law and the courts. It would be a brilliant, brilliant strategy. Have you in some of your work identified places where... Where there are just ridiculous surpluses that you could say, "Hey, tomorrow we could cut that entire division down. No one would know it's gone." Is there work being like that being done? And if not, should that get started now, six eight months before the um, the next Congress?
2: I don't have a specific answer for you, John. In fact, there's really there are too many corners of the federal government where there's just not a lot going on at all, and they're they're dumping money into extra goodies and things they shouldn't be spending on. I mean, this is a, a tried-and-true feature of government, which is that they have more money than they need, and everyone spends May, June, July, August, September scrambling to spend their excess funds so they don't get less money the next year from right. Congress, right? And, and you know, I, I have talked to a couple of people inside the Department of Homeland Security who have told me, so it doesn't make any sense that they're asking for more money because they're not letting us do anything in our job description. You know, all, all CBP, ICE, et cetera, officers are all saying, if we can't enforce the law, if we're not doing immigration enforcement, how on earth are they asking for budget increases and what are they using all this money for? Yeah, And it's a really good question. I mean, if that's one, if, if members of Congress are listening and anyone wants an idea for an investigation, that's one. Ask them what the heck they're spending all this money on if they are not using it to deport illegal aliens out of the country and arrest illegal aliens on U.S. soil. Are, are they giving the money question. like – is your co- is someone's cousin from Hoboken getting a contract to do X? What, what are they doing? What's going on? Um, and I think Congress really does need to take a hard look at just spending less. I mean, I think you could, you could make an argument that there are specific corners of the federal government that shouldn't exist at all or get too much money. But I'd make an argument that almost every agency and every office in every agency gets too much money. They all waste money. And if you want to rein in some of the nonsense, you just have to cut their levels of spending. Um, and, John, for what it's worth, just to add on the economic side, you know, everyone everyone is wondering why we always see growth. We remember we used to see growth at four and five yeah. percent under the Reagan administration. Right? We haven't even in good times we don't see growth like that anymore. And you've got to ask yourself: Is this the the you know the 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 dark matter equivalent of? why the economy is slower? Is it all this federal spending? Is the trillions of dollars of federal spending crippling our ability to have skyrocketing growth? So you're right. The, the Republicans in Congress, when they swoop in, they do have the ability to actually say, this is nuts. We're spending too much. The country's broken. We're going to we're gonna basically cut off some of the spending and see what happens in terms of improving the economy and getting some of this money out of government's hands back into the private sector as well.
0: Yeah, such an important dynamic. And we uh, have to make sure that the next Congress, whoever's in charge, starts to follow these principles because both parties have been aiding and abetting the runaway spending and the massive growth of bureaucracies. And then they wonder, well, how did we get these bureaucracies turned against us? Well, you've been funding them for so long. It's a really great point, John, that you make. Before we go, because you're doing such important work, what's the best way for people to stay in touch with with, with what you're doing at America First Legal Foundation?
2: Well, thank you for that, John. So uh, this, this case that we've been talking about challenging the Alien Always Wins rule, is we owe uh, General Paxson a huge thanks for he and his team taking on this one on. But this is just among one of the many things we're working on. And if you want to come check us out, please come see us at uh, aflegal.org. That's aflegal.org. Um, we're tackling everything from immigration to critical race theory to, um, well, pretty much everything in between. So yeah. come on and check us out. And if you are someone who is seeing abuse in your, your community or your neighborhood or your state or your city, reach out to us and we may be able to help you out.
0: It's uh, bookmarked ever since you started there. I bet I've had AFLegal.org bookmarked because that is such an important resource. And you guys are on the front lines of some of the most important cases, this Texas case last week being a really great example. John, always glad to have you on there. Always learn something every time you're on the podcast. Thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you, John. Thank you for having me on.
0: That's yeah, a great honor. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick uh, commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up for the day. Folks, if you get your wallet stolen or your cell phone or your car, we know what it is. It's old-fashioned theft. It's crime. We know it. Criminals now have a new way to steal our most valuable asset, our homes. Older Americans are most vulnerable to these types of thefts, and that's because they more often own their homes outright. An 88-year-old Florida woman recently discovered that scammers forged her signature, created a fake deed to her home, and then took her property. Those who buy a property from a deed theft scammer often become victims as well. What can you do to protect yourself? It's simple. My good friends at Home Title Lock go there today. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is 34 plus trillion dollars in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Justin News. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. So grateful that you could tune in. A uh, big thanks to George Beebe, to John Zadrosny, both who gave us tremendous interviews, tremendous insights on some of the most important news that is breaking in this town this week the border lawsuit a change and creating an endless loop of reviews so that uh, illegal aliens can stay in the country endlessly. Yeah, that happened on Secretary Mayorkas' watch, on Joe Biden's watch. John Zydrosny helped the Texas group file that claim. That's an exciting, a Texas attorney general really filed that claim. And then George Beebe talking about just how dangerous this moment is with Russia and ways that the United States could, through strength, de-escalate and get a better situation there. Two great guests. I'm really, really thankful for both of them for what they've done. Now, before we go, I always like to pass along one offer from a partner each day because we've got so many great partners. And today, because I slept like a baby all weekend, I'm thinking of my good friends at Cozy Earth. They are one of our newer partners, our newer sponsors. They make the softest, most luxurious, and best temperature regulating sheets on the planet. I'm not joking. I just slept on ours this weekend. And One night it was cold in the house and the sheets turned warm. Another night it was getting a little warmer last night and they were cooling. It literally changed my experience in bed. I never had sheets that adjusted to the temperature. So if you want to show your thanks to people who support Just the News, show it to Cozy Earth and get an incredible product. And because you're doing this, you're going to get an incredible special deal. All you got to do is go to CozyEarth, C-O-Z-Y-Earth.com and enter my promo code JUSTNEWS, all one word. So CozyEarth.com, put the promo code in JUSTNEWS. Guess what's going to happen? You do that, you pick out your sheets, you're getting 35% off. That is a deal. 35% off. Please go check these guys out. They are amazing. I just slept on the sheets this weekend. My wife and I were like, oh my God, this is like life-changing. This is a religious experience. I've never had sheets that adjusted to my body temperature. Well, if you want to get in on that, go to CozyEarth.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS tonight. All right, folks, that wraps it up. Have a great night. God bless you. God bless this extraordinary country of the United States. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News.